Ah, let's get started. Uh, we're going to start with a word of prayer, and then we'll jump right into our study for this session. Lord, as always, we thank you that uh, your word can be shared in this manner. I ask you, Lord, to use me as, as your voice, as your servant, and we ask you, Lord, that uh, the, the hearers of, of this would have their minds, hearts, spirit, body, and soul opened to the hearing of your word, Lord. Let it sink down into their hearts and let it become a blessing unto their lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, if you have your Bible, uh, please turn to uh, Romans chapter 10. We're actually going to be looking at chapter 11, but there's a few verses in chapter 10 we need to read first. So if you could find your way to Romans 10, 16. This is going to be quite a long reading because we're going to read most, if not all, of chapter 11. So just uh, bear with me for a few minutes. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Oh, yes, indeed. Their sound has gone out to all the earth, and their word to the ends of the world. But I say, did Israel not know? First, Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. But Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest. Lost my place. For Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. But Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. But to Israel, he says, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. <coughs> God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have attained it, and the rest were blinded. Just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so they do not see, and bow down their back always. I say then, have they stumbled, that talking about Israel, that they should fall? Certainly not. 
but through their fall to provoke them to salvation, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, Branches were broken off that I might be grafted in? Oh, well said. Because of unbelief they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness, consider the goodness and severity of God. On those who fell, severity, but toward you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness, Otherwise, you also will be cut off, and they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For you, if you were, if, for if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, who are natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will, will be saved, as it is written. The Deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant with them, when I take away their sins. Concerning the gospel... They are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him? For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Now, I would guess that you probably didn't understand a word of that reading. It is one of the most difficult passages of Scripture. You know, the Apostle Peter said over in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 15-16, that Paul, the things that, some of the that certain things Paul taught were very difficult to understand. 
So if you want a title, it will sum up what Paul is getting at in all these verses. Uh, those few verses from chapter 10 and chapter 11, no, going onward, it would be, what future is there for Israel? Now, Romans 9, 10, and 11, generally speaking, teach about God's sovereign dealings with Israel that are central to the plan of worldwide redemption. In chapter 9, God chose the nation of Israel as his missionary nation to the world. He wanted them to witness his goodness and glory to all, to all the world so that they would be the vehicle for delivering the Messiah. That's how God intended for the nation of Israel to be a blessing to the world because they would be the nation from whom Messiah would come. Now Paul has spent much of his time arguing that God acted justly and righteously when he chose to set aside Israel temporarily because they did not believe in the Messiah who came from them. Paul said the reason that they were set aside as far as their responsibility is concerned was because of their unbelief or their lack of faith. They missed the way of faith and thought that God's righteousness could be achieved through their own righteous works. Because of their unbelief, God has turned away temporarily from his chosen people Israel and is now turning to the Gentiles with a universal message of faith. It helps to know some of the context of the book of Romans, especially as far as chapters 9, 10, and 11 are concerned. Paul is writing to the church in Rome, and there was a Jew versus Gentile issue in Rome. I won't go into detail about that, but many of the Jewish believers in the church at Rome were finding it difficult to transition from God working exclusively with his elect nation of Israel to God now broadening his dealings to the whole world. had a lot of questions, and it didn't help matters much that Paul was now calling himself the apostle to the Gentiles. So the question that is inferred throughout chapters 9, 10, and 11, which the question is coming from the Jewish believers in the church at Rome, was, has God abandoned his covenant? Has he abandoned his elect, the Old Testament people, Israel, now, they've learned already from chapters 9 and 10 that God has set Israel aside temporarily. But there's a fresh question. Well, then, is God finished with Israel for good? Chapter 11, verse 1, gives us the answer to that question, where Paul says, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. You know, you can't get much more plain than what Paul says there. There's a two-pronged argument coming from Paul as to why God has not cast away Israel. The first is Israel's rejection is not total. That's verses 1 to 10 of chapter 11. Then his second prong is Israel's rejection is not final. It is not total, and it is not final. Two-pronged. I'm going to deal with those one at a time. Not only did God foreknow that Israel would, would fail him and be succeeded by the Gentile peoples, but he had Moses, the law, and Isaiah, the prophets, explicitly predict this. We read that at the end of verse 10, where there are prophecies from the law of Moses and from the prophet Isaiah. God foreknew these things. And let me say that nothing takes God unaware. There are no unforeseen circumstances as far as God's concerned. By quoting the prophets, Paul is telling us this is something that God foresaw. 
This program is not disrupted. Romans 8.28 tells us that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. God foresaw all this, and he prophesied about it through the law and the prophets. The Israel's rejection is not total. This hasn't taken God unaware. And he cites two pieces of evidence why Israel has not been cast away. The first is himself. You know, Paul personally, in verse 1, we read, Paul says, For I'm also, I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. He's saying, Israel's rejection is not total because there are Israelites being saved, and I'm one of them, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul's argument is personal. He has been saved. But there's not only his personal argument, there's the principle of the remnant that he uses as evidence that Israel is not rejected totally. Now, the principle of the remnant is simply this. Although the majority of Jews are in unbelief, God throughout Jewish history has often worked through a faithful remnant. And Paul gives an example in verses 2 to 5 about how God worked through a remnant in Elijah's day. Verse 2, God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they, they seek my life. And God says to him, I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Now even so then, at the present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. You know, Paul may have felt an affinity with Elijah. Elijah was praying against God's people, and Paul at times found himself praying against what his own people, the Israelites, wanted. I'm sure Paul probably felt alone, just like Elijah did. Yet, as God said to Elijah, Paul is saying to believing Jews, there is a remnant who have believed in Messiah. You know, it's not how many that is important in, in the remnant. What's important is God has been faithful to his covenant promises in keeping a remnant of his own elect people, the Jews. Paul uses that illustration from Elijah's day, and the application of it is in verse 5. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And again, as I've said previously, election here is corporate. It's speaking of a group of people. And what Paul is saying in verse 5 is, God likewise, as in Elijah's day, has graciously chosen that a group of Jews, a remnant, should remain. Uh, <clears throat> let me repeat that for the benefit of anyone listening who's not a Christian. This salvation that Paul speaks of through the whole book of Romans is a free gift offered by God. It is based upon the sacrifice of his own son. It's got nothing to do with what you can do for God, what you have done for God, or what you will do for God. It's all of grace. You must take it by faith and accept it because it is a free gift. You don't pay for it by doing anything. That's what salvation is. In verse 7, Paul tells us how each person in this elect remnant of Jews has obtained a status. 
What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have attained it, and the rest were blinded? Well, how did this remnant obtain righteousness with God? It is by faith, and the rest have been hardened or blinded in their unbelief. In chapter in verses 8 to 10 of chapter 11, Paul quotes Isaiah 20, and he quotes Psalm 69 to show that God has the right to judicially blind those who refuse, refuse to believe. You know, if you follow the gospel writings, you're going to find that the Jews that Jesus was ministering among at first would not believe. But there came a moment when that changed from them not believing, and that's John 12, 37 to 38, and it has a quotation from Isaiah 53, 1. But it changed from them not believing to not being able to believe. And the record changes to they could not believe. Not they would not, but they could not believe. Paul reserves the right to judicially blind those who refuse to believe. In verse 8, there's a wonderful illustration of this. God has given them a spirit of stupor, and the spirit of stupor is simply an attitude of deadness towards spiritual things. Now, if you're listening and you have an attitude of deadness towards spiritual things, you need to beware especially if you're a religious person. Look at verse 9 where Paul quotes David from Psalm 69, verse 22. Let their table become a snare and a trap. Now, Paul's idea there is that their table is their self-acclaimed security. It was all they owned as Jewish religious people, but the belief that their status as God's chosen people afforded them exemption from personal responsibility, became their snare. It was their downfall because they rested in their own assurance of what they were as Jews and how they practiced their law. And because they did not have faith in Messiah, they missed the righteousness of God. You need to beware if that's the case with you today. Are you in a stupor as far as religious, spiritual matters are, are concerned? You need to beware. Certainly beware if your security is found in your own self-righteousness, because that was the Jews' mistake. Main point of these verses is that Israel's rejection is not total. Paul himself is an example of an Israelite who has been saved. But there is also a remnant according to the election of grace by faith. And even today, there is a remnant of Jews coming to faith in Messiah. That's the first part of Paul's argument. Israel's rejection is not total. And the second part is Israel's rejection is not final. And that's in verse 11 all the way through to the end of, the, end of chapter 11. Look at verses 11, 11 to 14, where Paul argues that the purpose of Israel's stumbling, which was their unbelief in their Messiah, was not so that God would dispose of them, but rather for two reasons. God allowed them to fall into unbelief so that salvation would go out to the rest of the world. And secondly, he argues that Gentile salvation will eventually provoke the Jews into faith in the Messiah that they missed at his first coming. Verse 11 is speaking about that. 
I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Now, that words, those words in the Greek means utterly fall or be rejected forever. And Paul goes on to say, certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, we're going to deal with these points one at a time. The first reason why God allowed Israel to fall into unbelief is so that salvation should go out to the Gentile world. In many instances, the gospel only went out to Gentiles after the Jews rejected it. There are many examples of that. Acts chapter 13, chapter 18, chapter 28. First, the apostles preach the gospel to the Jew. The Jew rejects it. The Jewish people that they're preaching to reject it. So the apostles go and preach to the Gentiles. So the Jews' unbelief has enabled the gospel to go out to Gentile nations. And second, the second, this happened in order to provoke the Jews to a kind of jealousy so that they might eventually believe in Messiah. Now throughout church history, the church has often provoked Jews to the opposition of Christ by persecution and hatred for Jews. You need to think about that. Our coming to faith was meant to provoke Jews to faith in Jesus, but that isn't what the church has done throughout our history. We have provoked the Jews to opposition. Equally tragic is that although Israel's fall has brought riches to the Gentiles, and that's verse 12, it has only resulted in further rejection of Messiah among the Gentiles, and that's tragic. Now that the gospel has gone out to the whole world because of the fall and unbelief of Israel, what an awful tragedy it is that just as Israel rejected Messiah, now the Gentile nations are rejecting him as well. I'm going to bring that very personally to you. Are you rejecting him? If you are, I want you to consider the links that God has gone to to enable you to embrace his son as your personal savior. He has allowed his own elect people to become blind and unbelief so that the gospel could come to you where you are. I know many people think the gospel originated in the church, but it didn't. The reason that you have it today, the reason you're hearing it today, is because of the fall into unbelief of the Jews. And in verse 15, Paul turns the tables, says that if the Jews' rejection of Jesus has brought blessings to the Gentile nations, just think what worldwide blessings there will be when the Jews accept Jesus. Look at verse 15. If they're being cast away as the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? We'll revisit that in just a minute or two, but first, Paul illustrates how the Gentiles have been blessed through the nation of Israel. In verse 17, he uses an analogy. If some of the branches were broken off and you Gentiles you, speaking of the Gentiles, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them become a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. That's very simple, though it sounds complicated. The Gentile nations are described as a wild olive tree. Christian Gentiles who have believed in Messiah are the wild olive tree, 
and the original olive tree in the, in the analogy refers to Israel. Some of the branches of this natural olive tree have been broken off. And that means, you know, he's saying unbelieving Jews have been taken away from the promises by unbelief so that some branches of a wild olive tree, Gentile branches who believe in the Messiah, could be grafted in. Look at verse 18. If you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. So Gentile believers should not despise the Jews because Israel and her promises are the root that supports the Gentile branches. Jesus on one occasion was talking to a Samaritan woman at a well in John chapter 4. And one thing he told her sums up everything I've just said. Salvation is of the Jews. What that simply means is that Israel was God's elect people to bless the whole world. Israel came into existence to be a missionary nation to the world and the vehicle to deliver Messiah to be the Savior of the world. That's what Jesus meant when he said, Salvation is of the Jews. If we are to be saved as Gentiles, we have to be grafted into the natural olive tree in place of the branches of unbelieving Jews who have been broken off. And I hope you're staying with me in all this because Paul gives us a warning in verses 19 to 22. And you should read it very carefully. You will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Oh, well said. Because of unbelief, they were broken off. And you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who felt, who felt severity but toward you goodness if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. Now he's turning the table on the Gentiles and he's saying, you've been grafted in in place of the Israelites who have not believed, but beware. Because for the same reason of unbelief, you can be cut off as Gentiles. I'm going to pause here for a moment <clears throat> because some teachers use this to proclaim a doctrine of Saved and lost. That one moment you can be saved if, if you believe, but you have to continue to believe, and then the moment you stop believing, you will be one of those broken branches that will be cast away. That is not at all what Paul is talking about here. It is not saved and lost. This is about God's program. Remember, we're speaking corporately now, Jews and Gentiles. God's talking about nations. He is not talking about individual salvation. We know this because if you go all the way back to Romans chapter 1, you're going to see that Paul addresses nations and he says that if nations continually harden themselves against God and suppress the knowledge that they have of God, he will cut them off. He will give them up. He will give them over. This is a principle that God is, that Paul has already taught at the very beginning of this book and he's saying, Gentiles, you need to beware. You have received the gospel because of the fall of Israel, but beware if you do not believe in the gospel as Gentile nations, you too will be cut off. Did you get that? Because of hardening? Beware of hardening your heart against God. 
Verses 23 and 24 speak of how unbelief cut the Jews off. But now Paul says if they could believe, if they should believe, they will be grafted in again. It's obviously speaking nationally here. It's not speaking of individual people. The reason why we know that is there are Jews today who are believing. Paul was an example in his day of Jews of believing Jews. So was the remnant. There are Jews believing today. There are Jews who are benefiting from all the blessings of salvation. But Paul is speaking of how... <clears throat> lost my play. But Paul is speaking of how nationally, if the Jews embrace their Messiah, they will be grafted in again. But note, this is not conjecture that Paul speaks about. If the Jew believes, well, then he'll get the blessing. Look at verses 23 and 24. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, or if they believe, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. And you may say, well, that's not definite, but Paul goes on. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, or grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, who are natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? That's not certain, is it? Verse 25. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved. This is not simply conjecture about what could happen if Jews believed in their Messiah. It is prophetic. Because what Paul gives us in verses 25 and 26 is the promise of restoration to Israel, and therefore Paul exhorts the Gentiles. Don't gloat over the fact that Israel has fallen in, in unbelief, and you are believing in the Gentile nations. Nor, for that matter, should you proudly assert that they are cut off from God forever. No, Paul says. Here I'm going to reveal to you a mystery. A mystery, you know, a mystery in the Bible is a truth that has been previously obscured or hidden. The church is, is an example of that. It's a mystery in the Old Testament. It was never known. But it's revealed through the apostles and through the Lord Jesus in the New Testament. And here's another one. Paul says... Israel's blindness in part, their unbelief now, is only until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. That means that when the number of believing Gentiles is complete, then Israel's eyes will be opened, and as verse 26 says, and all Israel will be saved. Now you need to catch that, because if you're an unbeliever, are you the one that's going to make up that total? That's going to enable the fullness of the, you know, uh, to re to enable all Israel to be saved because God has a number to, in His mind. There is a number. But the reason why Paul shares this mystery is because if Gentiles misunderstand this mystery, they're going to be haughty and boast over their gain and the, the Jews lost. It's interesting, some people interpret this passage of Scripture, along with all New Testament portions of anything to do with Israel, as spiritual Israel. Now, spiritual Israel is the belief that Israel, 
in, in this portion of scripture in particular, signifies all of the redeemed, the Jews and Gentiles together. This idea first came into vogue in the teachings of Augustine, the early church father, in his book, The City of God. He basically said that the spiritual church of the New Testament replaces the carnal nation of Israel. Now, in Reformed theology, this led to the era of replacement theology, which teaches that the church is the continuation of the old nation of Israel, only in a spiritual sense. Therefore, all the promises to ancient Israel are spiritualized and applied to the church. And that's very common in Christianity today. But the problem is that the term Israel has not once been used of Gentiles. In Romans 9, 10, and 11, in these chapters, not once has Paul applied the term to Gentiles in any of his writings. When he speaks of Israel, he's either speaking of the whole nation of Israel or the believing remnant among Israel today. The only spiritual Israel is the believing remnant that is existing now. It is interesting, though, that replacement theology, which is teaching of, uh, it, it is interesting, though, that replacement theology teaching appropriates all the blessings for Israel in the Old Testament and appropriates those to the church. But you know what? They don't appropriate any of the curses to the church. Interesting turn. You should investigate that. Look at verse 25. Israel is spoken of as a nation in blindness. And in verse 26, Paul speaks of them as all being saved. But, and Paul, but Paul is saying ignorance of this mystery has led to pride and a haughty spirit towards Israel. Is Israel rejected for good? Just as now the nation has, has rejected Messiah, apart from this one faithful group of believers among the Jews, the remnant according to the election of grace, so that in a future day the nation as a whole will accept their Messiah? You shouldn't be surprised, because if you know your Bible, you will know that Scripture elsewhere teaches that Jesus will not return again to this earth until Israel responds to God through his Messiah Christ. Read Zechariah 12, and then flip over to Matthew 23, where Jesus says, I say unto you, Israel, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now Paul quotes from Isaiah in verses 26 and 27, and shows that God still has a plan for Israel. He has not cast them off. He foreknew everything about them. He had his prophets predicted. And if there's one certain thing, it's that God will never dishonor his word. His word is at stake in verses 28 and 29. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So when God promises something unconditionally, he is duty-bound and obliged to fulfill it. He foreknew Israel, and he 
gave his promises. If Israel has been condemned to extinction and no future, then God has dishonored his word. If Israel is con okay, how do you account for the survival of the Jewish people if Israel is condemned to extinction and has no future? How do you account for the survival? I mean, if the church replaces the old nation of Israel, why are the Jews still among us? You know, it's against all the odds. Furthermore, how do you account for Israel's resurgence among the nations of the world as an independent state? You know, less than 10 years after Hitler boasted that he would build his Nazi empire on the graveyard of Israel, on May 14, 1948, Israel became a nation state. They have been victorious in several wars, not least their war of independence in 1948. Did you know they didn't even have an army for that war? They were outnumbered 80 to 1. As soon as Israel declared her independence as a nation state, roughly half a million Jews in Israel were surrounded by 40, count that, 40 million Arabs that were determined to push them into the sea. Into the sea. Think of the significance of that. From 70 AD to 1967, and some of you can remember 1967, Israel was ruled by 40, the land of Israel was ruled by 40 different Gentile nations. But today, it's under Israeli control. How do you account for that? You know, during the hearing of the British Royal Commission on Palestine in 1937, David Ben-Gurion, the chairman of the executive committee of the Jewish Agency for Palestine, accounted for Jewish nationhood using these words. The Bible is our mandate. Now, chapter 9 of Romans teaches us Israel's past election. Chapter 10 teaches us their present rejection through unbelief. And chapter 11 teaches us their future restoration. Israel is the only nation in the world with a complete history, past, present, and future. And why is that? Verse 29, Paul says, The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. And that's in regard to the covenants that were made with the patriarchs. God has not changed his mind concerning them. Israel is assigned to all the nations of the world. If you want to know that God is for Israel, and I'm not saying everything they do is right politically or militarily, far from it. But if you want to know, want to know God is, is for them, all you need to see is their existence today, which is a fulfillment of prophecy. Look at Isaiah 66, 8 and Ezekiel chapter 37. Their existence today to the day when they will as a nation embrace Christ and Jesus will come. Do you know what that means for an unbeliever? The coming of the Lord surely draws near. And it's time you believed in this Savior. And to those of you who do believe, remember chapters 9, 10, and 11 of the book of Romans follows on from Romans chapter 8. 
where believers, Jew and Gentile alike, were asking, well, if God has not honored his promises to Israel, how, we can, how can we know that he's honored his promises to us? You say we're secure in Christ, but how can we know? And what Paul is saying here is, he is true to all who believe, Jew or Gentile, for God must keep his word. Verse 30, for as you were once disobedient, do you remember what you were as Gentiles, where you came from? Marvel at God's grace that through mercy shown to you, they also may obtain mercy. They may be provoked to jealousy, for God has committed them all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. I know it's complicated, but God is not a simpleton, and you need to remember that. Who else but God could have engineered a plan like this? that his own elect people should fall into unbelief so that the gospel could go out to the nations in order to make his own elect people jealous again that they might believe and embrace Messiah. And then Messiah comes to the world and reigns through all the nations. That God, who foreknew Israel, should use their fall for world redemption and in the light of that, the obvious response of Paul and us should be wonder, love, and praise. Verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who, who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him? See, God is the source, the means, and the end of all things. Verse 36 reads, For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. You know, someone has said, all, the, all those words are monosyllables. A child just learning to read could easily spell them out. But who shall exhaust their meaning? For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Praise is to be our response. But it's not our only response. If I may digress for a minute, chapter 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. What mercies of God is Paul talking about? These mercies. These mercies that have already been mentioned, the cost of our salvation, not just Christ's death and resurrection, but what it has cost the elect people of the Jews, the blessing that has gone out to us. What does that require of us? Reading on in verse 1 of chapter 12, that we present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to acceptable to God, which is our reasonable service. Do you praise him? Have you truly given yourself to him? Have you truly given yourself to him? Let's pray. I know the subject matter is very difficult, but I, it may be that you're listening. You could be a believer. You could be an unbeliever. And you have at least grabbed something. And the Spirit of God has touched something. 
Well, then respond. You have a responsibility to respond. What is the response? For both unbeliever and believer alike, it is to embrace Christ by faith. Give your all to him, for he is worthy and God has planned it so. Father, truly, our minds cannot take in all these deep truths in all their capacity. Yet, Lord, we are left, in a sense, dumbfounded. And all we can do, even though it is imperfect, is to worship that the fact that we who are not a people should be called the people of God and should know Yahweh, the covenant God, is our God. But what it cost to Israel, Lord, we pray that we ourselves as a church collectively would be a provocation to Jewish people, that they would see Christ in us, that they would not would that we would not provoke them to hatred, but to faith in Christ, Messiah Lord, most of all, help us everyone to believe God, to believe you in your promises. You have set your word above your name and you will not fail. Though we are faithless and unbelieving, you remain faithful. You cannot deny yourself. May all believe and have faith in God. Amen. Once again, to my listeners, thank you very much for listening. There will be more in the coming time. Thank you. Good day. Good day.